0: Thank you very much indeed for that introduction, Wilma. And can I just ask the people at the back, can you hear all right? Yeah, if at any point you can't, just stick your hands up and start waving. Well, my title today is Wolves and Winter in Old North Smith and Children's Literature. And when I thought up this title in the middle of the summer, I thought it was a fairly safe bet that perhaps today when we were having this lecture, at least a few snowflakes might be flickering past the window. But instead, of course, what we've got is unseasonable warmth. So I'm going to be asking you to imagine at various points what snow is like and see if you can cast your mind back to last spring when we certainly did have unseasonal snow. Well, when we read modern children's literature, what seems to us to be most recognisably borrowed from Old Norse? And in what I'm talking about today, I'm going to discount the straight retellings of myth like Roger Lansling Green's book The Heroes of Asgard, which was one of my childhood favourites, or the 19th century works like Wilhelm Wegner's Asgard and the Gods, which is still being reprinted, although it's about 150 years old. And that's the book which inspired A.S. Byatt's recent autobiographical meditation on Norse myth in her uh, 2011 book Ragnarok, which if you haven't read I highly recommend. And nor am I going to talk today very much about the incorporation of Norse gods or legendary heroes into invented fantasy worlds like we find in the work of Joanne Harris or Francesca Simon. So when we have the appearance of people called things like Odin and Thor, or we have heroes with special swords and with an obsession with dragons and honor, then we know that there's some kind of Norse influence at work there. And indeed, with the new film Thor The Dark World, which is apparently about to be released, um, I could have been talking about Thor and Loki and apparently the Dark Elves, who are the new enemies of Asgard, who are going to turn up in this film. And from the trailer I saw, they look pretty nasty, I can tell you. Um, But I'm not going to talk about that, partly because I haven't actually seen it. Um, So rather, what I am going to talk about today is the ways in which Norse myth and legend inform children's classics at a kind of submerged level. If you know Norse myth, when you're reading these books, you'll spot the borrowings quite often with delight or sometimes with puzzlement. For example, I was about seven when I started reading Roger Lansling Green's The Heroes of Asgard. And I guess I was a couple of years older when I read Alan Garner's The Weird Stone of Men, or Briesingamen, as I thought it was probably pronounced at the time. And I was old enough at that point to wonder why on earth the weird stone was the weird stone of the famous necklace that Freya wears in the Norse myths. And Garner never explains that, so I'm still wondering. But more generally, I'm going to suggest, we find modern children's writers employing ideas of the North in the stories that they write. They talk about the great winter, the Fimbulvetr, as it's called in Old Norse, which is a precursor of Ragnarök, the end of the world. And I'll also talk about those terrifying figures, the predatory cosmic wolves who chase the sun and the moon through the heavens and who one day will catch up with them. Well, I think we Europeans are at some collectively unconscious level attracted to ideas of the dark and the cold at the same time as we fear the winter. Winter is coming is a highly resonant phrase from the series Game of Thrones, of which I'm a big fan, I have to say. It echoes in our ears during the programme. And I think the location in Game of Thrones, which is the most terrifying and evocative in that series, is the icy world beyond the wall, where the others walk and where the direwolves run. Though I have to say for anybody who watches Game of Thrones, there are some nice direwolves in it as well. So I don't want to castigate all direwolves here. The children's authors I'm going to be talking about today in a kind of whistle-top store, stop, tour, I should say, are going to be C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, and Philip uh, Pullman. And I'll also mention in passing a couple of other writers. But the five authors that I'm concentrating on were all educated here in Oxford. They all studied English here, And of course, in the case of Lewis and Tolkien, they taught medieval English here for many years. And before the syllabus reforms of the 70s, the English syllabus here was top heavy with medieval literature. And I say that as a medievalist, there was an awful lot of it. And an understanding of philology was vital. The original model for the English degree was classics because of course anybody can just sit around reading novels, that's not the work of a gentleman. So the degree was shaped to look like classics, and comparative language study, Old English, Old Norse, even Gothic, played a crucial part in it. And some contemporary students of English, Philip Larkin and Kingsley Amis, for example, took a very dim view of medieval literature study. Kingsley Amis notoriously called Old English's greatest poem, "quote, the anonymous, crass, purblind, infantile, featureless heap of gangrened elephant sputum." I'm really glad I didn't have to teach Kingsley, I have to say. But plenty of other future authors studying in Oxford over the years found inspiration in medieval literature. In his scholarly work, Lewis was much more interested in the later medieval period than in Old Norse literature, and he never published on it. But Lewis tells us he was only 13 years old when he got his first glimpse of what he would later describe as pure northernness. Quote, a vision of huge, clear spaces hanging above the Atlantic in the endless twilight of northern summer, remoteness, severity. Now, Lewis's essence of pure northernness is a rather summary version, I think, as summary as in pertaining to the season of summer. And he found it in Margaret Armour's translation of the libretto of the last two operas in Wagner's Ring Cycle. He came across it by chance, and he was very taken with it, and in particular with Arthur Rackham's illustration of Siegfried meeting the Rhine maidens, And you can see that in the exhibition. And this opened the boy's eyes to the imaginative possibilities of the North, and he quickly saved up his pocket money and made his brother give him his pocket money as well, so that they could go off and buy the book in a rather cheaper version than the one he'd originally seen. So Lewis was a lifelong Wagner fan, but he also knew and loved the, tr- the two crucial medieval mythological texts, which are central to an understanding of Old Norse myth. The Prose Edda, which was written down around 1230, and the Poetic Edda, which was written down around 1270, and also the mid-13th century Saga of the Volsungs. These were all major sources for Wagner in composing the Ring. And according to the poem, the first poem in the Codex Regius manuscript, the first poem in the Poetic Edda, um, a poem whose title translates as the Seeress's prophecy, the gods become compromised through their oath-breaking and Baldr, the best and brightest of the gods, is slain by treachery within the divine community. Then human society begins to break down in murderousness and oath-breaking. The weather changes. Summer never comes, and the great winter arrives. And Fenrir, the great wolf, who is the son of Loki and the brother of the world serpent, is straining at his bonds. Something is about to happen. And I'm just going to quote here from my revised and expanded translation of the Poetic Edda coming out next spring, another book plug, I'm afraid, a couple of verses. In the East sat the old woman in Ironwood and gave birth there to Fenrir's offspring. One of them, in trollish shape, shall be snatcher of the moon. It gluts itself on doomed men's lives, reddens the gods' dwellings with crimson blood. Sunshine becomes black all the next summers. Winter, sorry, weather, all vicious. Do you want to know more, and what? And perhaps this idea of a winter that never ends comes from the Icelandic experience of volcanic eruptions, where the dust cloud, as we all remember from 2010, goes up and obscures the sun. Um, But I think we can also imagine, in the depths of a medieval winter, what it would be like if summer, in fact, never came. Well, soon after this prophecy, the giants are marching on Asgard, Loki is at their head, and fire and ice unite to bring down the gods, and the sun and moon are devoured by the wolves who eternally pursue them. The earth sinks into the ocean and humans lament piteously as everything is swept away." Well you can imagine all of this is a bit too apocalyptic for C.S. Lewis, who arrests his vision at a much earlier stage, where Narnia is the land where it's always winter but never Christmas. And here his wolves form part of the White Witch's secret police. A Fenris Ulf, that monstrous wolf who will devour Odin at Ragnarok, metamorphoses into Morgrim, who's the chief of the secret police force and who is eventually killed by Peter. And although I think the first half of Morgrim's name derives from French mal meaning bad, the grim is certainly an old Norse word and it's one which is quite often used for wolves. In the Cirrus' prophecy in that poem, the earth will rise once more out of the sea after Ragnarok and Balder will come back again. And so too in Narnia, quote, The sky became bluer and bluer, and now there were white clouds hurrying across it from time to time. In the white glades, there were primroses. The trees began to to come fully alive, and as the white witch's dwarf observes at that point, this isn't just a thaw, but spring is coming to Narnia, and it's Aslan's doing. Well, Norse wolves and winter really fire Alan Garner's imagination in the weird stone of Briesinger Men, and it's his first book in the series which is most inspired by Old Norse themes. In this book, Garner presents energetic and heroic dwarves, a mysterious dark figure called Grimnir, who bears a name which is often used by Odin, and he's the agent of the evil wizard Nastrand, and of course there's the weird stone itself. I've mentioned how Breezinga men is the great necklace of the Breezings in Old Norse, but also mentioned that it's never really explained. But at the end of the novel, Grimnir and Nastrond, with their ally Rimthur, who is a frost giant and who also has a good Norse name, conjure up the ice giant's breath, an intense winter storm, the fimble winter which signals the coming of the end, and the mighty cosmic wolf appears there. The wolf Managarm the hound of the moon is unleashed, and this is how Ghana describes it. Racing out of the north was a cloud, lower than any that hid the sun, and black. Monstrous it was, and in shape a ravening wolf. Its loins fell below the horizon, and its lean body arched across the sky to pounding shoulders, and a head with jaws agape, that even now was over the far end of the valley. All the sky to the north and east was wolf head, The mouth yawned wider till there was nothing to be seen but the black cavernous moor rushing down to swallow hill and valley whole. I think that's one of the most intensely terrifying passages I ever read when I was a child. And rereading it still, even standing here in the sunshine, is sending shivers down my spine. And it's only fire frost, the weird stone, which can dispel this cosmic threat. I note here that Alan Garner likes to use Norse mythic names in a fairly indiscriminate fashion. So Nastrond in his writing is a person, but in Old Norse it's a place. And Nastrond dwells in the Abyss of Ragnarok. So that's become a place and not an event. So there's some kind of mixing up going on here. But I think he has a very good ear for the fierce sounding names that you can derive from Old Norse, like Grimnir, as I've mentioned. And he also has Svarks, who are the dark elves and the brood, a bunch of really unpleasant trolls. And he frequently tra- contrasts these Norse names with more melodious-sounding names, like Cadellin, the good wizard, who seems to be derived from Celtic. Now, Philip Pullman, I think, is also somebody who brilliantly conjures up a wintry, pure northernness in his arctic landscapes in the first novel of the Dark Materials trilogy, the aptly named Northern Lights. Pullman isn't someone, I think, who leans particularly towards the mythic. His inspiration is from Milton and nuclear physics. But the almond Ice Bears, who are led by somebody called Jorik Birnison, whose society centres on the Arctic island of Svalbard, they all have good, authentic, north-sounding names. And when I asked Philip Pullman where he got them from, he said that he'd looked them all up in the glossary to Anthony Falk's translation of the, poetic e- of the Prose Edda, So I thought, yeah, Philip has been doing good research here. Pullman's bears are interesting because they offer a strong independent moral counterweight, I think, to all the untrustworthy wolves we find knocking around in other Norse-related texts. And we find that Bolvanger, the terrible concentration camp and experimental centre where the children are separated from their demons, is another Norse name. It means evil plane. So Pullman is good at coining new names out of old, I think. His witches all have Finnish names, though so I didn't ask him whether he just borrowed them from the Helsinki phone directory, which is what I've heard. And most of the, the witches are Finnish, but Ruta Skadi, who is the, um, one of the chief witches, shares her second name with the giantess Skadi, who is the patron deity of the mountains in Old Norse. And she's someone who prefers the howling of wolves to the sound of the seagulls at her husband's seaside home. But generally bears belong to the neighbours of the Norse. They belong to the Laps, to the Sami or to the Finns. And they have a rather limited role in Norse mythic thinking. So it's not perhaps so surprising that the bears and the Finnish named witches should end up on the same side. Susan Cooper's sequence, The Dark is Rising, draws on Arthurian and other specifically English folk traditions, such as the Wild Hunt led by Herne the Hunter, though in continental traditions, the Wild Hunter is sometimes led by Odin. But nevertheless, in the second novel of the sequence, The Dark is Rising, the story begins significantly enough on midwinter day in a snow covered landscape and the snow gets worse and worse as the forces of darkness gather strength. At the climax of the novel, as the balance of power shifts, floods succeed the blizzards as the world starts moving back towards the light. And in this novel, it's ravens and crows rather than wolves who are the agents of evil. But of course, in that kind of rather naturalistic setting, it would be a bit difficult, I think, to insert a lot of wolves running around the Thames Valley. The ravens and crows are Anglo-Saxon beasts of battle and portents of evil, and they're not Odin's ravens, Hugin and Muninn, who signal his intellectual powers and his information gathering. So I think they have a rather different meaning. Susan Cooper doesn't make direct reference to Norse material in this novel, but she certainly recognises the power of winter and darkness when it comes to framing mythic events. Not every writer who makes use of Norse themes draws on the wolf and winter combination. And here I want to turn to Diana Wynne-Jones' novel, Eight Days of Luke, which has no unnatural winter and it doesn't have oversized dogs either, um, perhaps because it's set in the summer holidays. And Eight Days of Luke is about a boy called Luke who erupts into the life of a lonely and unhappy child called David. And Luke turns out to be the god Loki, who has escaped from his bonds. In Old Norse myth, he's supposed to be kept tied up until Ragnarok. And Luke or Loki manifests himself as a charming but rather untruthful boy who has a mysterious affinity with fire. This is a connection, of course, which which Wagner makes, and he got it from the Brothers Grimm. And once Luke is loose, all sorts of other characters start turning up in the neighbourhood. There's Mr Wedding, who is a version of Odin, um, whose name in Anglo-Saxon is Woden, who is in charge of events, more or less. Mr Chu, a gardener, who is Tyr, or Tew, and who gives us Tuesday in English. And Mr and Mrs Fry, who represent Freyr and Freya, and don't really have much to do, but they turn up for completeness sake, I think. So they all appear in this suburban neighbourhood, and they browbeat poor young Luke, just as badly as David's bullying family tend to browbeat him. And David notices, quote, how small and frightened Luke's Harris figure looked among them. Never had David felt for anyone more. It was just like him among his own relations. So there's great sympathy for Loki here. Well, the gods are seeking Thor's hammer. And of course, that's a fairly familiar plot in all sorts of retellings of Norse story. As soon as Thor's hammer goes missing, we've got to find it. Because if the giants get it, it's going to be all up for the rest of us. And on this occasion, Sigurd and Brunhilde, the um, hero and heroine of the Ring Cycle and figures from heroic myth, have stolen it for their own purposes. And the figure of Mr Wedding, the Odinic figure, I think quite nicely retains Odin's wisdom and his fierceness and also his plausibility in this novel. He spins a good yarn. He ends up making a bargain with David that Luke can remain free if David can get the hammer back. And, of course, David undertakes the quest, and in it, he learns to stand up for himself and he gets free of all his dreadful relatives. But though the hammer is recovered in the end, not all of the breaches in the divine community are healed. And the novel almost ends with, it came home to David that Luke and Mr. Wedding were going to be on opposite sides when that final battle came. For now, all these figures agree to shelve their differences, But Ragnarok, even in this nice, sunny summer holiday, is still somewhere over the horizon. Well, finally, of course, I come to J.R. Tolkien, the writer who, having both studied and taught and written on Old Norse, and whose understanding of mythic themes and structures and of languages and right-soundingness, makes him the premier reshaper of Norse myth, I think, since Wagner. Now, Tolkien, of course, has plenty of wolves and they're a pretty nasty bunch of beasts, I have to say. There are the great wargs, a word derived from Old English, but also with a a reflection in Old Norse. And there are some quite ordinary boring wolves who are used as mounts by orcs. Sauron himself takes on wolf form from time to time, and Tolkien quite often uses Norse wolf terms like garm in the languages of Middle-earth. And he also has a couple of long winters, I find, by looking on um, the Tolkien Gateway website. There's both the long winter and the fell winter, which go on and on and on. They're part of the mythic past of Middle-earth, so they don't turn up in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. But they are endless severe winters in which the the hobbits might have starved to death if Gandalf hadn't turned up to help them. And apparently this is where Gandalf first became fond of hobbits in case you were wondering how that came about. So without uh, developing the wolves and winter particularly thoroughly, Tolkien makes more creative use of other Norse allusions. And already in The Hobbit, and that's what I'm going to talk about most for reasons of time, we find the dwarves who troop out of that poem, The sirius's Prophecy that I quoted earlier, Um, with all of their names in order, they all troop out of the poem and into Bilbo's comfortable hobbit hole, signalling adventure. They're all derived from Norse, and they have some of the, the habits of Norse dwarves. They're certainly a bit cantankerous. And Gandalf, too, oddly enough, bears the name of a dwarf, who also appears in the poem. But since the name means staff elf, it's a highly appropriate one for a wizard, so I think Tolkien was right to reapply it. Bilbo's riddle contest with Gollum borrows heavily from a a famous contest between King Heydrek and the god Odin in Heydrek's saga. And here, as in The Hobbit itself, Odin wins the contest by asking a completely unorthodox question to which only he can know the answer. It's a trick he uses more than once in the canon of Norse myth. If you ever find yourselves in a situation where you need to win a riddle contest, maybe if your head is at stake, the question to ask is, what did Odin say into the ear of Baldur on his funeral pyre? And that's a fairly unanswerable riddle. But well, I guess it's also slightly difficult to verify if somebody does answer it. <laughs> this unanswerable question violates the rules of the contest. And it always reveals Odin's concealed identity. And it brings the confrontation to an end with the, the question questioner going, oh, you're Odin, huh, I never guessed. And usually dying at that point. And Gollum too fails to guess what the Hobbit has in its pockets is. And he too is infuriated by Bilbo's deviation from the standard riddle contest here. And he cries, Not fair, not fair, and asks for more time to think. But the trajectory of Tolkien's great masterpiece depends on Gollum's failure, of course, for the answer to what is in the Hobbit's pockets is, of course, the ring. Later on in The Hobbit, Bilbo and the dwarves traverse the great Norse mythic forest of Mirkwood and they come to the lair of the dragon Smaug, as I like to call him, even if um, the film calls him something different. And this dragon shares many characteristics, vanity, loquaciousness, greed for gold, and a kind of accountant's eye for keeping track of his treasures. With his Norse forerunner and inspiration, someone who, who Tolkien knew well, the dragon Fafnir, who of course also appears in the ring, now, Smog's name comes from the same Germanic root as Gollum's original name, interestingly enough. Smog means something like one who crept, and Smogal, as uh, Gollum was originally called in Old English, is one who considers or one who meditates. And you can see that in both cases, they're associated with the idea of slow, deliberate movement. In the Poetic Edda, the hero Sigurd succeeds in fatally wounding the dragon by dint of digging a pit, lying in the dragon's path and stabbing him in the belly. And the hero and the dying dragon have a conversation. In this, Fafnir prophesies Sigurd's death, though he actually does this wrongly. Uh, He warns of the treachery of his brother. And Sigurd takes this opportunity to chat to the dragon and acquire a few tidbits of mythic knowledge, none of which come in particularly useful later on. Then the dragon finally expires. And so too we see Bilbo sweet-talking his way into Smorg's confidence. He eventually, though not of course in that conversation, discovers the dragon's vulnerable spot and he's instrumental in the monster's killing. So how to talk to a dragon is a crucial skill for heroes and burglars. Again, that's something we might wish to remember. Well, in summary, Norse myth and legend remains productive still in the 21st century. Francesca Simon's book, The Sleeping Army, which is intended for y- rather younger readers, takes its inspiration from the Lewis Chessmen to explore a brave little girl's quest to rescue the gods from the depredations of old age. And what's happened here is that the giants, as they do in Norse myth, have stolen the goddess Ethan, who keeps the apples of youth, and the gods are getting distinctly doddery at this point. Uh, Freya teams up with a berserk warrior called Snot. Um, which of course means wise, but you can imagine the jokes that come out of that. And Thor's two servants, Roskva and somebody called Alfi, who in Old Norse is called Thjalfi. Freya saves the gods, of course, she rescues Eden, she gets the apples back. And she also saves herself from being turned into a chessman too, because this is the fate of all the people who have tried and failed in the quest. They get turned into chessmen, and you can see them in the British Museum. So, if you're there looking at the Lewis chessmen, you will know where they originate, and it's not what the label on the the case says. Joanne Harris, too, the author of Chocolat, has written two books set in a post-Ragnarok world, where the Norse gods, although they would died at Ragnarok, have come back again, and they're alive and active. And seeking to get their power back once more and in these two books the two heroines have to fight to help the gods to take the world back over and the author melvin burgess often the controversial author um, author of junk for example has written two books which are based on the legends of the volsungs the same legends about sigurd and the dragon and Brünhilde, which are the basis of wagner's ring cycle and these books, um, Blood Song and Blood Tide, are set in a kind of cyberpunk future. To my mind, these are among the, the best of books that he's ever written, and it's, I find it very interesting to talk to him about them. They're very much based on his reading of Norse myth as a child, um, reading not Roger Lansing Green in this case, but um, the Oxford collection of, of Norse myths. So, Norse myth, its heroes, its gods, its wolves, its winters, its essence of what Lewis called pure northernness is continuing to inspire and entrance young readers to part them from their pocket money, rather like C.S. Lewis parted his poor brother from his pocket money all those years ago. And I think young people, and not so young people, still fall like C.S. Lewis under that bright northern spell that he encountered 100 years ago. Thank you.